What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 2, Chapter 13 of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book 2. Birds of a Feather, Chapter Thirteen: A Solo and a Duet. The wind was blowing so hard when the visitor came out at the shop door into the darkness and dirt of Limehouse Hole, that it almost blew him in again. Doors were slamming violently, lamps were flickering or blown out, signs were rocking in their frames, the water of the kennels, wind dispersed, flew about in drops like rain. Indifferent to the weather and even preferring it to better weather for its clearance of the streets, the man looked about him with a scrutinising glance. "'Thus much I know,' he murmured. "'I had never been here since that night, and never was here before that night, but thus much I recognise. I wonder which way did we take when we came out of that shop. We turned to the right, as I have turned, but I can recall no more. Did we go by this alley?' or down that little lane. He tried both, but both confused him equally, and he came straying back to the same spot. I remember there were poles pushed out of upper windows on which clothes were drying, and I remember a low public house, and the sound flowing down a narrow passage belonging to it, of the scraping of a fiddle, and the shuffling of feet. But here are all these things in the lane, and here are all these things in the alley. And I have nothing else in my mind but a wall, a dark doorway, a flight of stairs, and a room. He tried a new direction, but made nothing of it. Walls, dark doorways, flights of stairs, and rooms were too abundant. And, like most people so puzzled, he again and again described a circle, and found himself at the point from which he had begun. "'This is like what I have read in narratives of escape from prison,' said he, "'where the little track of the fugitives in the night "'always seems to take the shape of the great round world on which they wander, "'as if it were a secret law.' "'Here he ceased to be the oakum-headed, oakum-whiskered man, "'on whom his pleasant riderhood had looked, "'and allowing for his being still wrapped in a nautical overcoat, "'became as like that same lost-wanted Mr. Julius Hanford.' as never man was like another in this world. In the breast of the coat he stowed the bristling hair and whisker. In a moment, as the favouring wind went with him down a solitary place, that it had swept clear of passengers, yet in that same moment he was the secretary also, Mr. Boffin's secretary, 
for John Rokesmith, too, was as like that same lost-wanted Mr. Julius Hanford, as never man was like another in this world. "'I have no clue to the scene of my death,' said he. "'Not that it matters now. But having risked discovery by venturing here at all, I should have been glad to track some part of the way.' With which singular words he abandoned his search, came up out of Limehouse Hole, and took the way past Limehouse Church. At the great iron gate of the churchyard he stopped and looked in. He looked up at the high tower spectrally resisting the wind, and he looked round at the white tombstones, like enough to their dead in their winding sheets, and he counted the nine tolls at the clock-bell. "'It is a sensation not experienced by many mortals,' said he, to be looking into a churchyard on a wild, windy night, and to feel that I no more hold a place among the living than these dead do, and even to know that I lie buried somewhere else, as they lie buried here. Nothing uses me to it. A spirit that was once a man could hardly feel stranger or lonelier going unrecognised among mankind than I feel. But this is the fanciful side of the situation. It has a real side, so difficult that, though I think of it every day, I never thoroughly think it out. Now, let me determine to think it out as I walk home. I know I evade it, as many men, perhaps most men, do evade thinking their way through their greatest perplexity. I will try to pin myself to mine. Don't evade it, John Harmon. Don't evade it. Think it out. When I came to England, attracted to the country with which I had none but most miserable associations, by the accounts of my fine inheritance that found me abroad, I came back, shrinking from my father's money, shrinking from my father's memory, mistrustful of being forced on a mercenary wife, mistrustful of my father's intention in thrusting that marriage on me, mistrustful that I was already growing avaricious, mistrustful that I was slackening gratitude to the two dear noble honest friends who had made the only sunlight in my childish life, or that of my heartbroken sister. I came back, timid, divided in my mind, afraid of myself and everybody here, knowing of nothing but wretchedness that my father's wealth had ever brought about. Now stop, and so far think it out, John Harmon. Is that so? That is exactly so. On board, serving as third mate, was George Radfoot. I knew nothing of him. His name first became known to me about a week before we sailed, through my being accosted by one of the ship-agent's clerks as Mr. Radfoot. It was one day when I had gone aboard to look to my preparations, and the clerk, coming behind me as I stood on deck, tapped me on the shoulder and said, "'Mr. Radfoot, look here,' referring to some papers that he had in his hand, and my name first became known to Radfoot, through another clerk, within a day or two, and while the ship was yet in port, coming up behind him, tapping him on the shoulder, and beginning, "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Harmon. I believe we were alike in bulk and stature, but not otherwise, and that we were not strikingly alike, even in those respects, when we were together, and could be compared.' However, a sociable word or two on these mistakes became an easy introduction between us, and the weather was hot, 
that he helped me to a cool cabin on deck alongside his own, and his first school had been at Brussels, as mine had been, and he had learned French, as I had learnt it, and he had a little history of himself to relate. God only knows how much of it was true, and how much of it false, that had its likeness to mine. I had been a seaman, too. So we got to be confidential together, and the more easily yet, because he and every one on board had known, by general rumour, what I was making the voyage to England for. By such degrees and means he came to the knowledge of my uneasiness of mind, and of its setting at that time in the direction of desiring to see and form some judgment of my allotted wife, before she could possibly know me for myself, also to try Mrs. Boffin, and give her a glad surprise. So the plot was made out of our getting common sailors' dresses, as he was able to guide me about London, and throwing ourselves in Bella Wilfer's neighbourhood, and trying to put ourselves in her way, and doing whatever chance might favour on the spot, and seeing what came of it. If nothing came of it, I should be no worse off, and there would merely be a short delay in my presenting myself to Lightwood. I have all these facts right? Yes, they are all accurately right. His advantage in all this was, that for a time I was to be lost. It might be for a day, or for two days, but I must be lost sight of on landing, or there would be recognition, anticipation, and failure. Therefore I disembarked, with my valise in my hand, as Potterson, the steward, and Mr. Jacob Kibble, my fellow-passenger, afterwards remembered, and waited for him in the dark, by that very Limehouse church, which is now behind me. As I had always shunned the port of London, I only knew the church through his pointing out its spire from on board. Perhaps I might recall, if it were any good to try, the way by which I went to it alone from the river, but how we two went from it to Riderhood's shop. I don't know, any more than I know what turns we took and doubles we made after we left it. The way was purposely confused, no doubt. But let me go on thinking the facts out, and avoid confusing them with my speculations. Whether he took me by a straight way or a crooked way, what is that to the purpose now? Steady, John Harmon. When we stopped at Riderhood's, and he asked that scoundrel a question or two, purporting to refer only to the lodging-houses in which there was accommodation for us, had I the least suspicion of him? None. Certainly none until afterwards, when I held the clue. I think he must have got from Riderhood in a paper, the drug, or whatever it was, that afterwards stupefied me, but I am far from sure. All I felt safe in charging on him to-night was old companionship and villainy between them. Their undisguised intimacy, and the character I now know Riderhood to bear, made that not at all adventurous. But I am not clear about the drug. Thinking out the circumstances in which I found my suspicion, they are only two. 1. I remember his changing a small folded paper from one pocket to another, after we came out, which he had not touched before. 2. I now know Riderhood to have been previously taken up for being concerned in the robbery of an unlucky seaman to whom some such poison had been given. It is my conviction that we cannot have gone a mile from that shop, before we came to the wall, the dark doorway, the flight of stairs, and the room. The night was particularly dark, 
and it rained hard. As I think the circumstances back, I hear the rain splashing on the stone pavement of the passage, which was not under cover. The room overlooked the river, or a dock or a creek, and the tide was out. Being possessed of the time down to that point, I know by the hour that it must have been about low water, but while the coffee was getting ready, I drew back the curtain, a dark brown curtain, and, looking out, knew by the kind of reflection below, of the few neighbouring lights, that they were reflected in tidal mud. He had carried under his arm a canvas bag, containing a suit of his clothes. I had no change of outer clothes with me, as I was to buy slops. "'You are very wet, Mr. Harmon,' I can hear him saying, "'and I am quite dry under this good waterproof coat. Put on these clothes of mine. You may find on trying them that they will answer your purpose to-morrow as well as the slops you mean to buy, or better. While you change, I'll hurry the hot coffee.' When he came back, I had his clothes on, and there was a black man with him, wearing a linen jacket like a steward, who put the smoking coffee on the table in a tray, and never looked at me. I am so far literal and exact. Literal and exact, I am certain. Now, I pass to sick and deranged impressions. They are so strong that I rely upon them, but there are spaces between them that I know nothing about and they are not pervaded by any idea of time. I had drank some coffee, when, to my sense of sight, he began to swell immensely, and something urged me to rush at him. We had a struggle near the door. He got from me, through my not knowing where to strike, in the whirling round of the room, and the flashing of flames of fire between us. I dropped down, lying helpless on the ground. I was turned over by a foot. I was dragged by the neck into a corner. I heard men speak together. I was turned over by other feet. I saw a figure like myself lying dressed in my clothes on a bed. What might have been, for anything I knew, a silence of days, weeks, months, years, was broken by a violent wrestling of men all over the room. The figure like myself was assailed and my valise was in its hand. I was trodden upon, and fallen over. I heard a noise of blows, and thought it was a woodcutter cutting down a tree. I could not have said that my name was John Harmon. I could not have thought it. I didn't know it. But when I heard the blows, I thought of the woodcutter and his axe, and had some dead idea that I was lying in a forest. This is still correct? still correct, with the exception that I cannot possibly express it to myself without using the word I. But it was not I. There was no such thing as I within my knowledge. It was only after a downward slide through something like a tube, and then a great noise and a sparkling and crackling as of fires, that the consciousness came upon me. This is John Harmon drowning. John Harmon, struggle for your life. John Harmon, call on heaven and save yourself. I think I cried it out aloud in a great agony, and then a heavy, horrid, unintelligible something vanished, and it was I who was struggling there, alone in the water. I was very weak and faint, frightfully oppressed with drowsiness and driving fast with the tide. Looking over the black water, 
I saw the lights racing past me on the two banks of the river, as if they were eager to be gone and leave me dying in the dark. The tide was running down, but I knew nothing of up or down then. When, guiding myself safely with heaven's assistance before the fierce set of the water, I at last caught at a boat moored, one of a tier of boats at a causeway, I was sucked under her, and came up, only just alive, on the other side. Was I long in the water? Long enough to be chilled to the heart, but I don't know how long. Yet the cold was merciful, for it was the cold night air and the rain that restored me from a swoon on the stones of the causeway. They naturally supposed me to have toppled in drunk when I crept to the public house it belonged to, for I had no notion where I was, and could not articulate, through the poison that had made me insensible having affected my speech, and I suppose the night to be the previous night, as it was still dark and raining, but I had lost twenty-four hours. I have checked the calculation often, and it must have been two nights that I lay recovering in that public house. Let me see. Yes, I am sure it was while I lay in that bed there, that the thought entered my head of turning the danger I had passed through to the account of being for some time supposed to have disappeared mysteriously, and of proving Bella. The dread of our being forced on one another, and perpetuating the fate that seemed to have fallen on my father's riches, the fate that they should lead to nothing but evil, was strong upon the moral timidity that dates from my childhood with my poor sister. As to this hour, I cannot understand that side of the river where I recovered the shore, being the opposite side to that on which I was ensnared. I shall never understand it now. Even at this moment, while I leave the river behind me going home, I cannot conceive that it rolls between me and that spot, or that the sea is where it is. But this is not thinking it out, this is making a leap to the present time. I could not have done it but for the fortune in the waterproof belt round my body. Not a great fortune, forty and odd pounds for the inheritor of a hundred and odd thousand, but it was enough. Without it I must have disclosed myself. Without it I could never have gone to that exchequer coffee-house, or taken Mrs. Wilfer's lodgings. Some twelve days I lived at that hotel, before the night when I saw the corpse of Radfoot at the police-station the inexpressible mental horror that I laboured under, as one of the consequences of the poison, makes the interval seem greatly longer, but I know it cannot have been longer. That suffering has gradually weakened and weakened since, and has only come upon me by starts, and I hope I am free from it now. But even now I have sometimes to think, constrain myself, and stop before speaking, or I could not say the words I want to say. Again I ramble away from thinking it out to the end. It is not so far to the end that I need be tempted to break off. Now, on straight. I examined the newspapers every day for tidings that I was missing, but saw none. Going out that night to walk, for I kept retired while it was light, I found a crowd assembled round a placard posted at Whitehall. It described myself, John Harmon, was found dead and mutilated in the river, under circumstances of strong suspicion, described my dress, described the papers in my pockets, and stated where I was lying for recognition. 
In a wild and cautious way I hurried there, and there, with the horror of the death I had escaped before my eyes in its most appalling shape, added to the inconceivable horror tormenting me at that time, when the poisonous stuff was strongest on me, I perceived that Radfoot had been murdered by some unknown hands for the money for which he would have murdered me, and that probably we had both been shot into the river from the same dark place into the same dark tide, when the stream ran deep and strong. That night I almost gave up my mystery, though I suspected no one, could offer no information, knew absolutely nothing save that the murdered man was not I, but Radfoot. Next day, while I hesitated, and next day, while I hesitated, it seemed as if the whole country were determined to have me dead. The inquest declared me dead. The government proclaimed me dead. I could not listen at my fireside for five minutes to the outer noises, but it was borne into my ears that I was dead. So John Harmon died, and Julius Hanford disappeared, and John Rokesmith was born. John Rokesmith's intent to-night has been to repair a wrong that he could never have imagined possible, coming to his ears through the lightwood talk related to him, and which he is bound by every consideration to remedy. In that intent, John Rokesmith will persevere, as his duty is. Now, is it all thought out? All to this time? Nothing omitted? No. Nothing. But beyond this time, to think it out through the future, is a harder, though a much shorter task than to think it out through the past. John Harmon is dead. Should John Harmon come to life? If yes, why? If no, why? Take yes first. To enlighten human justice concerning the offence of one far beyond it, who may have a living mother, to enlighten it with the lights of a stone passage, a flight of stairs, a brown window-curtain, and a black man, to come into possession of my father's money, and with it, sordidly, to buy a beautiful creature whom I love. I cannot help it. Reason has nothing to do with it. I love her against reason. But who would as soon love me for my own sake, as she would love the beggar at the corner? What a use for the money, and how worthy of its old misuses! Now, take no. The reasons why John Harmon should not come to life. Because he has passively allowed these dear old faithful friends to pass into possession of the property. Because he sees them happy with it, making a good use of it, effacing the old rust and tarnish on the money, because they have virtually adopted Bella, and will provide for her, because there is affection enough in her nature, and warmth enough in her heart, to develop into something enduringly good, under favourable conditions, because her faults have been intensified by her place in my father's will, and she is already growing better, because her marriage with John Harmon after what I have heard from her own lips, would be a shocking mockery, of which both she and I must always be conscious, and which would degrade her in her mind, and me in mine, and each of us and the others. Because if John Harmon comes to life and does not marry her, the property falls into the very hands that hold it now. What would I have? 
Dead, I have found the true friends of my lifetime still as true, as tender, and as faithful as when I was alive, and making my memory an incentive to good actions done in my name. Dead, I have found them when they might have slighted my name, and passed greedily over my grave to ease and wealth, lingering by the way like single-hearted children to recall their love for me when I was a poor frightened child. Dead, I have heard from the woman who would have been my wife if I had lived. The revolting truth that I should have purchased her, caring nothing for me, as a sultan buys a slave. What would I have? If the dead could know, or do know, how the living use them, who among the hosts of dead has found a more disinterested fidelity on earth than I, is not that enough for me? If I had come back, these noble creatures would have welcomed me, wept over me, given up everything to me with joy. I did not come back, and they have passed unspoiled into my place. Let them rest in it, and let Bella rest in hers. What course for me, then? This, to live the same quiet, secretary life, carefully avoiding chances of recognition, until they shall have become more accustomed to their altered state, and until the great swarm of swindlers, under many names, shall have found newer prey. By that time, the method I am establishing through all the affairs, and with which I will every day take new pains to make them both familiar, will be, I may hope, a machine in such working order as that they can keep it going. I know I need but ask of their generosity to have. When the right time comes, I will ask no more than will replace me in my former path of life, and John Rokesmith shall tread it as contentedly as he may, but John Harmon shall come back no more. That I may never, in the days to come afar off, have any weak misgiving that Bella might, in any contingency, have taken me for my own sake, if I had plainly asked her, I will plainly ask her, proving beyond all question what I already know too well. And now it is all thought out, from the beginning to the end, and my mind is easier. So deeply engaged had the living dead man been, in thus communing with himself, that he had regarded neither the wind nor the way, and had resisted the former instinctively, as he had pursued the latter. But being now come into the city, where there was a coach-stand, he stood irresolute whether to go to his lodgings, or to go first to Mr. Boffin's house. He decided to go round by the house, arguing, as he carried his overcoat upon his arm, that it was less likely to attract notice, if left there, than if taken to Holloway, both Mrs. Wilfer and Miss Lavinia being ravenously curious, touching every article of which the lodger stood possessed. Arriving at the house, he found that Mr. and Mrs. Boffin were out, but that Miss Wilfer was in the drawing-room. Miss Wilfer had remained at home, in consequence of not feeling very well and had inquired in the evening if Mr. Rokesmith were in his room. "'Make my compliments to Miss Wilfer, and say I am here now.' Miss Wilfer's compliments came down in return, and, if it were not too much trouble, would Mr. Rokesmith be so kind as to come up before he went. It was not too much trouble, and Mr. Rokesmith came up. "'Oh, she looked very pretty. She looked very, very pretty.' If the father of the late John Harmon had but left his money unconditionally to his son, 
and if his son had but lighted on this lovable girl for himself, and had the happiness to make her loving as well as lovable. "'Dear me! Are you not well, Mr. Rokesmith?' "'Yes, uh, quite well. I was sorry to hear when I came in that you were not.' "'A mere nothing. I had a headache. Gone now, and was not quite fit for a hot theatre, so I stayed at home. I asked you if you were not well, because you look so white.' "'Do I? I have had a busy evening.' She was on a low ottoman before the fire, with a little shining jewel of a table, and her book and her work beside her. Ah, what a different life the late John Harmon's, if it had been his happy privilege to take his place upon that ottoman, and draw his arm about that waist, and say, I hope the time has been long without me. What a home-goddess you look, my darling! But the present John Rokesmith, far removed from the late John Harmon, remained standing at a distance. A little distance in respect of space, but a great distance in respect of separation. "'Mr. Rokesmith,' said Bella, taking up her work and inspecting it all round the corners. I wanted to say something to you, when I could have the opportunity, as an explanation why I was so rude to you the other day. You have no right to think ill of me, sir." The sharp little way in which she darted a look at him, half sensitively injured and half pettishly, would have been very much admired by the late John Harmon. "'You don't know how well I think of you, Miss Wilfer.' "'Truly. You must have a very high opinion of me, Mr. Rokesmith, when you believe that in prosperity I neglect and forget my old home.' "'Do I believe so?' "'You did, sir, at any rate,' returned Bella. "'I took the liberty of reminding you of a little omission into which you had fallen, insensibly and naturally fallen. It was no more than that.' "'And I beg leave to ask you, Mr. Rokesmith,' said Bella, "'why you took that liberty?' I hope there is no offence in the phrase. It is your own, remember." "'Because I am truly, deeply, profoundly interested in you, Miss Wilfer, because I wish to see you always at your best. Because I—shall I go on?' "'No, sir,' returned Bella, with a burning face. "'You have said more than enough. I beg that you will not go on. If you have any generosity, any honour, you will say no more.' The late John Harmon, looking at the proud face with the downcast eyes, and at the quick breathing as it stirred the fall of bright brown hair over the beautiful neck, would probably have remained silent. "'I wish to speak to you, sir,' said Bella, "'once for all, and I don't know how to do it. I have sat here all this evening, wishing to speak to you, and determining to speak to you, and feeling that I must. I, I beg for a moment's time.' He remained silent, and she remained with her face averted, sometimes making a slight movement as if she would turn and speak. At length she did so. "'You know how I am situated here, sir, and you know how I am situated at home. I must speak to you for myself, since there is no one about me whom I could ask to do so. It is not generous in you. It is not honourable in you to conduct yourself towards me as you do." "'Is it ungenerous or dishonourable to be devoted to you, fascinated by you?' "'Preposterous!' said Bella. 
the late John Harmon might have thought it rather a contemptuous and lofty word of repudiation. "'I now feel obliged to go on,' pursued the secretary. "'Though it were only in self-explanation and self-defence, I hope, Miss Wilfer, that it is not unpardonable, even in me, to make an honest declaration of an honest devotion to you.' "'An honest declaration?' repeated Bella, with emphasis. "'Is it otherwise?' "'I must request, sir,' said Bella, taking refuge in a touch of timely resentment, "'that I may not be questioned. You must excuse me if I decline to be cross-examined.' "'Oh, Miss Wilfer, this is hardly charitable. I ask you nothing but what your own emphasis suggests. However, I waive even that question. But what I have declared, I take my stand by.' I cannot recall the avowal of my earnest and deep attachment to you, and I do not recall it." "'I reject it, sir,' said Bella. "'I should be blind and deaf if I were not prepared for the reply. Forgive my offence, for it carries its punishment with it.' "'What punishment?' asked Bella. "'Is my present endurance none? But excuse me, I did not mean to cross-examine you again.' "'You take advantage of a hasty word of mine,' said Bella, with a little sting of self-reproach, "'to make me seem—I don't know what. I spoke without consideration when I used it. If that was bad, I am sorry. But you repeat it after consideration, and that seems to me to be at least no better. For the rest, I beg it may be understood, Mr. Rokesmith, that there is an end of this between us, now and for ever.' "'And for ever,' he repeated. "'Yes. I appeal to you, sir,' proceeded Bella, with increasing spirit, "'not to pursue me. I appeal to you not to take advantage of your position in this house, to make my position distressing and disagreeable. I appeal to you to discontinue your habit of making your misplaced attentions as plain to Mrs. Boffin as to me.' "'Have I done so?' "'I should think you have,' replied Bella. "'In any case, it is not your fault if you have not, Mr. Rokesmith.' "'I hope you are wrong in that impression. I should be very sorry to have justified it. I think I have not. For the future there is no apprehension. It is all over.' "'I am much relieved to hear it,' said Bella. "'I have far other views in life, and, and why should you waste your own?' "'Mine,' said the secretary. "'My life!' His curious tone caused Bella to glance at the curious smile with which he said it. It was gone, as he glanced back. "'Pardon me, Miss Wilfer,' he proceeded when their eyes met. "'You have used some hard words, for which I do not doubt you have a justification in your mind, that I do not understand. Ungenerous and dishonourable. In what?' "'I would rather not be asked,' said Bella haughtily looking down. "'I would rather not ask. But the question is imposed upon me. Kindly explain. Or, if not kindly, justly.' "'Oh, sir,' said Bella, raising her eyes to his, after a little struggle to forbear, "'is it generous and honourable to use the power here which your favour with Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, and your ability in your place, give you against me?' "'Against you?' 
is it generous and honourable to form a plan for gradually bringing their influence to bear upon a suit which i have shown you that i do not like and which i tell you that i utterly reject the late john harmon could have borne a good deal but he would have been cut to the heart by such a suspicion as this would it be generous and honourable to step into your place if you did so for i don't know that you did and i hope you did not anticipating or knowing beforehand that i should come here and designing to take me at this disadvantage this mean and cruel disadvantage said the secretary yes assented bella the secretary kept silence for a little while then merely said you are wholly mistaken miss wilfer wonderfully mistaken i cannot say however that it is your fault if i deserve better things of you you do not know it at least sir retorted bella with her old indignation rising you know the history of my being here at all i have heard mr boffin say that you are master of every line and word of that will as you are master of all his affairs and was it not enough that i should have been willed away like a horse or a dog or a bird but must you too begin to dispose of me in your mind and speculate in me as soon as i had ceased to be the talk and the laugh of the town am i for ever to be made the property of strangers believe me returned the secretary you are wonderfully mistaken i should be glad to know it answered bella i doubt if you ever will good night of course i shall be careful to conceal any traces of this interview from mr and mrs boffin as long as i remain here trust me what you have complained of is at an end for ever i am glad i have spoken then mr rokesmith it has been painful and difficult but it is done if i have hurt you i hope you will forgive me i am inexperienced and impetuous and i have been a little spoilt but I really i am not so bad as i dare say i appear or as you think me he quitted the room when bella had said this relenting in her wilful inconsistent way left alone she threw herself back on her ottoman and said i didn't know the lovely woman was such a dragon then she got up and looked in the glass and said to her image you have been positively swelling your features you little fool then she took an impatient walk to the other end of the room and back and said i wish pa was here to have a talk about an avaricious marriage but he is better away poor dear for i know i should pull his hair if he was here and then she threw her work away and threw her book after it and sat down and hummed a tune and hummed it out of tune and quarrelled with it and john rokesmith what did he he went down to his room and buried john harmon many additional fathoms deep he took his hat and walked out and as he went to holloway or anywhere else not at all minding where heaped mounds upon mounds of earth over john harmon's grave his walking did not bring him home until the dawn of day and so busy had he been all night piling and piling weights upon weights of earth above john harmon's grave that by that time john harmon lay buried under a whole alpine range and still the sexton rokesmith accumulated mountains over him lightening his labour with the dirge cover him 
crush him, keep him down. End of Book Two, Chapter Thirteen. Book Two, Chapter Fourteen of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Birds of a Feather. Chapter Fourteen, Strong of Purpose. The sexton task of piling earth above John Harmon all night long was not conducive to sound sleep but Rokesmith had some broken morning rest, and rose strengthened in his purpose. It was all over now. No ghost should trouble Mr. and Mrs. Boffin's peace, invisible and voiceless. The ghost should look on for a little while longer at the state of existence out of which it had departed, and then should for ever cease to haunt the scenes in which it had no place. He went over it all again. He had lapsed into the condition in which he found himself, as many a man lapses into many a condition, without perceiving the accumulative power of its separate circumstances. When, in the distrust engendered by his wretched childhood, and the action for evil, never yet for good, within his knowledge then, of his father and his father's wealth, on all within their influence, he conceived the idea of his first deception. It was meant to be harmless. It was to last but a few hours or days, it was to involve in it only the girl so capriciously forced upon him, and upon whom he was so capriciously forced, and it was honestly meant well towards her. For if he had found her unhappy in the prospect of that marriage, through her heart inclining to another man, or for any other cause, he would seriously have said, This is another of the old perverted uses of the misery-making money. I will let it go to my and my sister's only protectors and friends. When the snare into which he fell so outstripped his first intention, as that he found himself placarded by the police authorities upon the London walls for dead, he confusedly accepted the aid that fell upon him, without considering how firmly it must seem to fix the boffins in their accession to the fortune. When he saw them, and knew them, and even from his vantage-ground of inspection could find no flaw in them, he asked himself, and shall I come to life to dispossess such people as these? There was no good to set against the putting of them to that hard proof. He had heard from Bella's own lips, when he stood tapping at the door on that night of his taking the lodgings, that the marriage would have been on her part thoroughly mercenary. He had since tried her, in his own unknown person and supposed station, and she not only rejected his advances, but resented them. Was it for him to have the shame of buying her? or the meanness of punishing her, yet, by coming to life and accepting the condition of the inheritance, he must do the former, and by coming to life and rejecting it, he must do the latter. Another consequence that he had never foreshadowed was the implication of an innocent man in his supposed murder. He would obtain complete retraction from the accuser, and set the wrong right, but clearly the wrong could never have been done if he had never planned a deception. Then, whatever inconvenience or distress of mind the deception cost him, it was manful, repentantly, to accept as among its consequences, and make no complaint. Thus John Rokesmith in the morning, and it buried John Harmon still many fathoms deeper than he had been buried in the night. 
Going out earlier than he was accustomed to do, he encountered the cherub at the door. The cherub's way was for a certain space his way, and they walked together. It was impossible not to notice the change in the cherub's appearance. The cherub felt very conscious of it, and modestly remarked, "'A present from my daughter Bella, Mr. Rokesmith.' The words gave the secretary a stroke of pleasure, for he remembered the fifty pounds, and he still loved the girl. No doubt it was very weak, it always is very weak, some authorities hold, but he loved the girl. "'I don't know whether you happen to have read many books of African travel, Mr. Rokesmith,' said R. W. "'I have read several.' "'Well, you know, there's usually a King George, or a King Boy, or a King Sambo, or a King Bill, or Bull, or Rum, or Junk, or whatever name the sailors may have happened to give him.' "'Where?' asked Rokesmith. "'Anywhere. Anywhere in Africa, I mean. Pretty well everywhere, I may say, for black kings are cheap.' "'And I think,' said R. W., with an apologetic air, "'nasty.' "'I am much of your opinion, Mr. Wilfer. You were going to say?' "'I was going to say, the King is generally dressed in a London hat only, or a Manchester pair of braces, or one epaulette, or an uniform coat with his legs in the sleeves, or something of that kind.' "'Just so,' said the secretary. "'In confidence, I assure you, Mr. Rokesmith,' observed the cheerful cherub, "'that when more of my family were at home, and to be provided for, "'I used to remind myself immensely of that king. "'You have no idea, as a single man, "'of the difficulty I have had in wearing more than one good article at a time.' "'I can easily believe it, Mr. Wilfer. "'I only mention it.' said R. W., in the warmth of his heart, as a proof of the amiable, delicate, and considerate affection of my daughter Bella. If she had been a little spoilt, I couldn't have thought so very much of it, under the circumstances, but no, not a bit, and she is so very pretty. I hope you agree with me in finding her very pretty, Mr. Rokesmith. Certainly I do. Every one must. "'I hope so,' said the cherub. "'Indeed, I have no doubt of it. This is a great advancement for her in life, Mr. Rokesmith, a great opening of her prospects.' "'Miss Wilfer could have no better friends than Mr. and Mrs. Boffin.' "'Impossible,' said the gratified cherub. "'Really, I begin to think things are very well as they are. If Mr. John Harmon had lived, he is better dead.' said the secretary. "'No, I won't go so far as to say that,' urged the cherub, a little remonstrant against the very decisive and unpitying tone. "'But he mightn't have suited Bella, or Bella mightn't have suited him, or fifty things, whereas now I hope she can choose for herself.' "'Has she... "'As you place the confidence in me of speaking on the subject, you will excuse my asking. Has she, perhaps, chosen?' faltered the secretary. "'Oh, dear, no,' returned R. W. "'Young ladies, sometimes,' 
Rokesmith hinted, "'choose without mentioning their choice to their fathers.' "'Not in this case, Mr. Rokesmith. Between my daughter Bella and me there is a regular league and covenant of confidence. It was ratified only the other day. The ratification dates from these,' said the cherub, giving a little pull at the lapels of his coat and the pockets of his trousers. "'Oh, no, she is not chosen. To be sure, young George Sampson, in the days when Mr. John Harmon—' "'Who I wish had never been born,' said the secretary, with a gloomy brow. R.W. looked at him with surprise, as thinking he had contracted an unaccountable spite against the poor deceased, and continued, "'In the days when Mr. John Harmon was being sought out, young George Sampson certainly was hovering about Bella, and Bella let him hover. But it never was seriously thought of.' and it's still less than ever to be thought of now. For Bella is ambitious, Mr. Rokesmith, and I think I may predict will marry fortune. This time, you see, she will have the person and the property before her together, and will be able to make her choice with her eyes open. This is my road. I am very sorry to part company so soon. Good morning, sir. The secretary pursued his way not very much elevated in spirits by this conversation, and arriving at the Boffin mansion, found Betty Higden waiting for him. "'I should thank you kindly, sir,' said Betty, "'if I might make so bold as have a word or two with you.' She should have as many words as she liked, he told her, and took her into his room, and made her sit down. "'Tis concerning Sloppy,' sir said betty and that's how i come here by myself not wishing him to know what i'm a-going to say to you i got the start of him early and walked up you have wonderful energy returned rokesmith you are as young as i am betty higden gravely shook her head i am strong for my time of life sir but not young thank the lord "'Are you thankful for not being young?' "'Yes, sir. If I was young, it would all have to be gone through again, and the end would be a weary way off, don't you see? But never mind me. Tis concerning Sloppy.' "'And what about him, Betty?' "'Tis just this, sir. It can't be reasoned out of his head by any powers of mine, but what that he can do right by your kind lady and gentleman, and do his work for me both together. Now he can't. To give himself up to being put in the way of arning a good living and getting on, he must give me up. Well, he won't. I respect him for it, said Rokesmith. "'Do ye, sir? I don't know but what I do myself. Still, that don't make it right to let him have his way. So, as he won't give me up, I'm a-going to give him up.' "'How, Betty?' "'I'm a-going to run away from him.' With an astonished look at the indomitable old face and the bright eyes, the secretary repeated, "'Run away from him?' "'Yes, sir,' said Betty, with one nod and in the nod, and in the firm set of her mouth, there was a vigour of purpose not to be doubted. "'Come, come,' said the secretary, "'we must talk about this. 
Let us take our time over it, and try to get at the true sense of the case, and the true course, by degrees. "'Now, look here, my dear,' returned old Betty, "'asking your excuse for being so familiar, but being of a time of life almost to be your grandmother, twice over. Now, look here. "'Tis a poor living, and a hard, as is to be got out of this work that I'm a-doing now. And but for sloppy, I don't know as I should have held to it this long. But it did just keep us on, the two together. Now that I'm alone, with even Johnny gone, I'd far sooner be upon my feet, and tiring of myself out, than a sitting folding and folding by the fire. And I'll tell you why. There's a deadness steals over me at times, that the kind of life favours and I don't like. Now I seem to have Johnny in my arms. Now his mother. Now his mother's mother. Now I, I seem to be a child myself, a lion once again in the arms of my own mother. Then I get numbed, thought and sense, till I start out of my seat, afeard that I'm a-growing like the poor old people that they brick up in the unions, as you may sometimes see, when they let him out of the four walls to have a warm in the sun, crawling quite scared about the streets. I was a nimble girl, and have always been an active body, as I told your lady first time ever I see her good face. I can still walk twenty mile, if I'm put to it. I'd far better be a-walking than a-getting numbed and dreary. I'm a good fair knitter, and can make many little things to sell. The loan from your lady and gentleman of twenty shillings to fit out a basket with would be a fortune for me. Trudging round the country, and tiring of myself out, I shall keep the deadness off, and get my own bread by my own labour. And what more can I want?' "'And this is your plan,' said the secretary, "'for running away?' "'Show me a better, my dearie, show me a better. "'Why, I know very well,' said old Betty Higdon, "'and you know very well that your lady and gentleman "'would set me up like a queen for the rest of my life, "'if so be that we could make it right among us to have it so. "'But we can't make it right among us to have it so.' I've never took charity yet, nor yet has any one belonging to me. And it would be forsaking of myself indeed, and forsaking of my children dead and gone, and forsaking of their children dead and gone, to set up a contradiction now at last. It might come to be justifiable and unavoidable at last, the secretary gently hinted, with a slight stress on the word. I hope it never will. "'It ain't that I mean to give offence by being any ways proud,' said the old creature simply, "'but that I want to be of a peace like, and helpful of myself, right through to me death.' "'And, to be sure,' added the secretary as a comfort for her, "'Sloppy will be eagerly looking forward to his opportunity of being to you what you have been to him.' "'Trust him for that, sir.' said Betty, cheerfully, though he had need to be something quick about it, for I'm a-getting to be an old one. But I'm a strong one, too, and travel and weather never hurt me yet. Now, be so kind as to speak for me to your lady and gentleman, 
and tell em what I ask of their good friendliness to let me do, and why I ask it. The secretary felt that there was no gainsaying what was urged by this brave old heroine, and he presently repaired to Mrs. Boffin, and recommended her to let Betty Higdon have her way, at all events for the time. "'It would be far more satisfactory to your kind heart, I know,' he said, "'to provide for her. But it may be a duty to respect this independent spirit.' Mrs. Boffin was not proof against the consideration set before her. She and her husband had worked too, and had brought their simple faith and honour clean out of dust-heaps. If they owed a duty to Betty Higdon, of a surety that duty must be done. "'But Betty,' said Mrs. Boffin, when she accompanied John Rokesmith back to his room, and shone upon her with the light of her radiant face, "'Granted all else, I think I wouldn't run away.' "'Twould come easier to Sloppy,' said Mrs. Higdon, shaking her head. "'Twould come easier to me, too. But tis as you please.' "'When would you go?' "'Now,' was the bright and ready answer. "'To-day, my dearie, to-morrow. Bless ye, I'm used to it. I know many parts of the country well. When nothing else was to be done, I have worked in many a market-garden afore now, and in many a hop-garden, too. "'If I give my consent to your going, Betty, which Mr. Rokesmith thinks I ought to do,' Betty thanked him with a grateful curtsy, "'we must not lose sight of you. We must not let you pass out of our knowledge. We must know all about you.' "'Yes, my dearie, but not through letter-writing, because letter-writing, indeed, writing of most sorts, hadn't much come up for such as me when I was young. But I shall be to and fro, no fear of my missing a chance of giving myself a sight of your reviving face. Besides,' said Betty, with logical good faith, "'I shall have a debt to pay off by littles.' and naturally that would bring me back if nothing else would must it be done asked mrs boffin still reluctant of the secretary i think it must after more discussion it was agreed that it should be done and mrs boffin summoned bella to note down the little purchases that were necessary to set betty up in trade don't ye be timorous for me my dear said the staunch old heart, observant of Bella's face. "'When I take my seat with my work, clean and busy and fresh, in a country market-place, I shall turn a sixpence, as sure as ever a farmer's wife there.' The secretary took that opportunity of touching on the practical question of Mr. Sloppy's capabilities. "'He would have made a wonderful cabinet-maker.' said Mrs. Higdon, if there had been the money to, to put him to it. She had seen him handle tools that he had borrowed to mend the mangle, or to knock a broken piece of furniture together in a surprising manner. As to constructing toys for the minders out of nothing, he had done that daily. And once, as many as a dozen people had got together in the lane to see the neatness with which he fitted the broken pieces of a foreign monkey's musical instrument. "'That's well,' said the secretary. 
It will not be hard to find a trade for him. John Harmon, being buried under mountains now, the secretary that very same day set himself to finish his affairs, and have done with him. He drew up an ample declaration, to be signed by Rogue Riderhood, knowing he could get his signature to it by making him another and much shorter evening call, and then considered to whom should be given the document. To Hexham's son or daughter? Resolved speedily to the daughter. But it would be safer to avoid seeing the daughter, because the son had seen Julius Hanford, and he could not be too careful. There might possibly be some comparison of notes between the son and daughter, which would awake slumbering suspicion, and lead to consequences. I might even, he reflected, be apprehended as having been concerned in my own murder. Therefore, best to send it to the daughter, under cover by the post. Pleasant Riderhood had undertaken to find out where she lived, and it was not necessary that it should be attended by a single word of explanation. So far, straight. But all that he knew of the daughter he derived from Mrs. Boffin's accounts of what she heard from Mr. Lightwood, who seemed to have a reputation for his manner of relating a story, and to have made this story quite his own. It interested him, and he would like to have the means of knowing more, as, for instance, that she received the exonerating paper, and that it satisfied her. By opening some channel altogether independent of Lightwood, who likewise had seen Julius Hanford, who had publicly advertised for Julius Hanford, and whom of all men he, the secretary, most avoided. But with whom the common course of things might bring me in a moment face to face any day in the week or any hour in the day. Now, to cast about for some likely means of opening such a channel. The boy Hexham was training for and with a schoolmaster. The secretary knew it because his sister's share in that disposal of him seemed to be the best part of Lightwood's account of the family. This young fellow, sloppy, stood in need of some instruction. If he, the secretary, engaged that schoolmaster to impart it to him, the channel might be opened. The next point was, did Mrs. Boffin know the schoolmaster's name? No, but she knew where the school was. Quite enough. Promptly the secretary wrote to the master of that school, and that very evening Bradley Headstone answered in person. The secretary stated to the schoolmaster how the object was to send to him, for certain occasional evening instruction, a youth whom Mr. and Mrs. Boffin wished to help to an industrious and useful place in life. The schoolmaster was willing to undertake the charge of such a pupil. The secretary inquired on what terms. The schoolmaster stated on what terms, agreed, and disposed of. "'May I ask, sir,' said Bradley Headstone, to whose good opinion I owe a recommendation to you. You should know that I am not the principal here. I am Mr. Boffin's secretary. Mr. Boffin is a gentleman who inherited a property, of which you may have heard some public mention, the Harmon property. Mr. Harmon, said Bradley, who would have been a great deal more at a loss than he was, if he had known to whom he spoke, was murdered and found in the river was murdered and found in the river. It was not—no, interposed the secretary, smiling. It was not he who recommended you. Mr. Boffin heard of you through a certain Mr. Lightwood. I think you know Mr. Lightwood, or know of him. I know as much of him as I wish to know, sir. I have no acquaintance with Mr. Lightwood, and I desire none. I have no objection to Mr. Lightwood. 
when I have a particular objection to some of Mr. Lightwood's friends, in short, to one of Mr. Lightwood's friends, his great friend. He could hardly get the words out even then and there, so fierce did he grow, though keeping himself down with an infinite pains of repression, when the careless and contemptuous bearing of Eugene Rayburn rose before his mind. The secretary saw there was a strong feeling here on some sore point, and he would have made a diversion from it, but for Bradley's holding to it in his cumbersome way. "'I have no objection to mention the friend by name,' he said doggedly. "'The person I object to is Mr. Eugene Rayburn.' The secretary remembered him. In his disturbed recollection of that night, when he was striving against the drugged drink, there was but a dim image of Eugene's person. But he remembered his name, and his manner of speaking, and how he had gone with them to view the body, and where he had stood, and what he had said. "'Pray, Mr. Headstone, what is the name?' he asked again, trying to make a diversion, of uh, young Hexham's sister. "'Her name is Lizzie.' said the schoolmaster, with a strong contraction of his whole face. "'She is a young woman of a remarkable character, is she not?' "'She is sufficiently remarkable to be very superior to Mr. Eugene Rayburn, though an ordinary person might be that,' said the schoolmaster. "'And I hope you will not think it impertinent in me, sir, to ask why you put the two names together.' "'By mere accident?' returned the secretary. "'Observing that Mr. Rayburn was a disagreeable subject with you, I tried to get away from it, though not very successfully, it would appear. "'Do you know Mr. Rayburn, sir?' "'No.' "'Then perhaps the names cannot be put together on the authority of any representation of his?' "'Certainly not.' "'I took the liberty to ask,' said Bradley, after casting his eyes on the ground, "'Because he is capable of making any representation in the swaggering levity of his insolence. I—I I hope you will not misunderstand me, sir. I—I am much interested in this brother and sister, and the subject awakens very strong feelings within me—very, very strong feelings.' With a shaking hand, Bradley took out his handkerchief and wiped his brow. The secretary thought, as he glanced at the schoolmaster's face, that he had opened a channel here indeed, and that it was an unexpectedly dark and deep and stormy one, and difficult to sound. All at once, in the midst of his turbulent emotions, Bradley stopped, and seemed to challenge his look, much as though he suddenly asked him, "'What do you see in me?' "'The brother, young Hexham, was your real recommendation here?' said the secretary, quietly going back to the point. "'Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, happening to know, through Mr. Lightwood, that he was your pupil, anything that I ask respecting the brother and sister, or either of them, I ask for myself, out of my own interest in the subject, and not in my official character, or on Mr. Boffin's behalf. How I come to be interested, I need not explain. You know the father's connection with the discovery of Mr. Harmon's body.' "'Sir,' replied Bradley, very restlessly indeed, I know all the circumstances of that case. Pray tell me, Mr. Headstone, said the secretary, does the sister suffer under any stigma because of the impossible accusation? 
Groundless would be a better word that was made against the father, and substantially withdrawn. "'No, sir,' returned Bradley, with a kind of anger. "'I am very glad to hear it.' "'The sister,' said Bradley, separating his words over-carefully, and speaking as if he were repeating them from a book, "'suffers under no reproach that repels a man of unimpeachable character who had made for himself every step of his way in life from placing her in his own station. I will not say raising her to his own station, I say placing her in it. A sister labours under no reproach unless she should unfortunately make it for herself. When such a man is not deterred from regarding her as his equal, and when he has convinced himself that there is no blemish on her, I think the fact must be taken to be pretty expressive.' "'And there is such a man,' said the secretary. Bradley Headstone knotted his brows, and squared his large lower jaw, and fixed his eyes on the ground with an air of determination that seemed unnecessary to the occasion, as he replied, "'And there is such a man.' The secretary had no reason or excuse for prolonging the conversation, and it ended here. Within three hours the oakum-headed apparition— once more dived into the leaving-shop, and that night Rogue Riderhood's recantation lay in the post-office, addressed under cover to Lizzie Hexham at her right address. All these proceedings occupied John Rokesmith so much that it was not until the following day that he saw Bella again. It seemed then to be tacitly understood between them that they were to be as distantly easy as they could, without attracting the attention of Mr. and Mrs. Boffin to any marked change in their manner. The fitting out of old Betty Higdon was favourable to this, as keeping Bella engaged and interested, and as occupying the general attention. "'I think,' said Rokesmith, when they all stood about her, while she packed her tidy basket, except Bella, who was busily helping, on her knees, at the chair on which it stood, "'that, at least, you might keep a letter in your pocket, Mrs. Higdon, which I would write for you, and date from here, merely stating, in the names of Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, that they are your friends. I won't say patrons, because they wouldn't like it. "'No, no, no,' said Mr. Boffin. "'No patronising. Let's keep out of that, whatever we come to.' "'There's more than enough of that about without us, ain't there, Noddy?' said Mrs. Boffin. "'I believe you, old lady,' returned the Golden Dustman, "'overmuch indeed.' "'But people sometimes like to be patronised, don't they, sir?' asked Bella, looking up. "'I don't. And if they do, my dear, they ought to learn better,' said Mr. Boffin. "'Patrons and patronesses, and vice-patrons, and vice-patronesses, and deceased patrons, and deceased patronesses, and ex-vice-patrons, and ex-vice-patronesses. What does it all mean, in the books of the charities that come pouring in on Rokesmith, as he sits among them pretty well up to his neck?' If Mr. Tom Noakes gives his five shillings, ain't he a patron? And if Mrs. Jack Stiles gives her five shillings, ain't she a patroness? What the deuce is it all about? If it ain't stark staring impudence, what do you call it?' "'Don't be warm, Noddy,' Mrs. Boffin urged. "'Warm?' cried Mr. Boffin. "'It's enough to make a man smoky not. I can't go anywhere without being patronised. I don't want to be patronised. If I buy a ticket for a flower show, or a music show, or any sort of show, and pay pretty heavy for it, why am I to be patroned and patronessed, as if the patrons and patronesses treated me? If there's a good thing to be done, can't it be done in its own merits? If there's a bad thing to be done, can it ever be patroned and patronessed right? 
Yet, when a new institution's going to be built, it seems to me that the bricks and mortar ain't made of half so much consequence as the patrons and patronesses. No, nor yet the objects. I wish somebody would tell me whether other countries get patronised to anything like the extent of this one. And as to the patrons and patronesses themselves, I wonder they're not ashamed of themselves. They ain't pills, or hair-washes, or invigorating nervous essences to be puffed in that way." Having delivered himself of these remarks, Mr. Boffin took a trot, according to his usual custom, and trotted back to the spot from which he had started. "'As to the letter, Rokesmith,' said Mr. Boffin, "'you're as right as a trivet. Give her the letter, make her take the letter, put it in her pocket by violence. She might fall sick. You know you might fall sick,' said Boffin. "'Don't deny it, Mrs. Higdon. In your obstinacy, you know you might.' Old Betty laughed, and said that she would take the letter and be thankful. "'That's right,' said Mr. Boffin. "'Come, that's sensible. And don't be thankful to us, for we never thought of it, but to Mr. Rokesmith.' The letter was written, and read to her, and given to her. "'Now, how do you feel?' said Mr. Boffin. "'Do you like it?' "'The letter, sir,' said Betty. "'Ay, it's a beautiful letter.' "'No, no, no, not a letter,' said Mr. Boffin. "'The idea. Are you sure you're strong enough to carry out the idea?' "'I shall be stronger, and keep the deadness off better this way, than any way left open to me, sir.' "'Don't say, than any way left open, you know,' urged Mr. Boffin, "'because there are ways without end. A housekeeper would be acceptable over yonder at the bower, for instance. Wouldn't you like to see the bower, and know a retired literary man, of the name of Wegg, that lives there, with a wooden leg?" Old Betty was proof even against this temptation, and fell to adjusting her black bonnet and shawl. "'I wouldn't let you go, now it comes to this after all,' said Mr. Boffin, "'if I didn't hope that it may make a man and a workman of Sloppy, in a shorter time as ever a man and workman was made yet. Why? What have you got there, Betty? Not a doll." It was the man in the guards who had been on duty over Johnny's bed. The solitary old woman showed what it was, and put it up quietly in her dress. Then she gratefully took leave of Mrs. Boffin, and of Mr. Boffin, and of Rokesmith, and then put her old withered arms round Bella's young and blooming neck, and said, repeating Johnny's words, "'A kiss for the boofer lady.' The secretary looked on from a doorway at the boofer lady thus encircled, and still looked on at the boofer lady standing alone there, when the determined old figure, with its steady bright eyes, was trudging through the streets, away from paralysis and pauperism. End of Book Two, Chapter Fourteen Book Two, Chapter Fifteen of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Birds of a Feather. Chapter Fifteen. The Whole Case So Far. Bradley Headstone held fast by that other interview he was to have with Lizzie Hexham. In stipulating for it, he had been impelled by a feeling little short of desperation, and the feeling abided by him. 
it was very soon after his interview with the secretary that he and Charlie Hexam set out one leaden evening, not unnoticed by Miss Peacher, to have this desperate interview accomplished. "'That doll's dressmaker,' said Bradley, "'is favourable neither to me nor to you, Hexam.' "'A pert, crooked little chit, Mr. Headstone. I knew she'd put herself in the way if she could, and would be sure to strike him with something impertinent.' He was on that account that I proposed our going to the city to-night, and meeting my sister. "'So I supposed,' said Bradley, getting his gloves on his nervous hands as he walked. "'So I supposed.' "'Nobody but my sister,' pursued Charlie, "'would have found out such an extraordinary companion. She's done it in ridiculous fancy of giving herself up to another. She told me so that night when we went there.' "'Why should she give herself up to the dressmaker?' asked Bradley. "'Oh,' said the boy, colouring, "'one of her romantic ideas. I tried to convince her so, but I didn't succeed. However, what we have got to do is to succeed to-night, Mr. Headstone, and then all the rest follows.' "'You are still sanguine, Hexam?' "'Certainly I am, sir. Why, we have everything on our side.' "'Except your sister, perhaps,' thought Bradley, but he only gloomily thought it, and said nothing. "'Everything on our side,' repeated the boy, with boyish confidence. "'Respectability, an excellent connection for me, common sense, everything.' "'To be sure, your sister has always shown herself a devoted sister,' said Bradley, willing to sustain himself on even that low ground of hope. "'Naturally, Mr. Headstone.' I've a good deal of influence with her. And now that you have honoured me with your confidence, and spoken to me first, I say again, we have everything on our side. And Bradley thought again, except your sister, perhaps. A grey, dusty, withered evening in London City has not a hopeful aspect. The closed warehouses and offices have an air of death about them, and the national dread of colour has an air of mourning. The towers and steeples of the many house-encompassed churches, dark and dingy as the sky that seems descending on them, are no relief to the general gloom. A sundial on a church wall has the look, in its useless black shade, of having failed in its business enterprise, and stopped payment for ever. Melancholy waifs and strays of housekeepers and porter sweep melancholy waifs and strays of papers and pins into the kennels and other more melancholy waifs and strays explore them, searching and stooping and poking for anything to sell. The set of humanity outward from the city is as a set of prisoners departing from jail, and dismal Newgate seems quite as fit a stronghold for the mighty Lord Mayor as his own state dwelling. On such an evening, when the city grit gets into the hair and eyes and skin, and when the fallen leaves of the few unhappy city trees grind down in corners under wheels of wind, the schoolmaster and the pupil emerged upon the Leadenhall Street region, spying eastward for Lizzie. Being something too soon in their arrival, they lurked at a corner, waiting for her to appear. The best-looking amongst us will not look very well lurking at a corner, and Bradley came out of that disadvantage very poorly indeed. "'Here she comes, Mr. Headstone.' Let us go forward and meet her. As they advanced, she saw them coming, and seemed rather troubled, but she greeted her brother with the usual warmth, and touched the extended hand of Bradley. "'Why, 
"'Where are you going, Charlie, dear?' she asked him then. "'Nowhere. We came on purpose to meet you.' "'To meet me, Charlie?' "'Yes. We're going to walk with you. But don't let us take the great leading streets, where everyone walks, and we can't hear ourselves speak. Let us go by the quiet back ways. Here's a large paved court by this church, and quiet, too. Let us go up here.' "'But it's not in the way, Charlie.' "'Yes, it is,' said the boy petulantly. "'It's in my way, and my way is yours.' She had not released his hand, and, still holding it, looked at him with a kind of appeal. He avoided her eyes, under pretence of saying, "'Come along, Mr. Headstone.' Bradley walked at his side, not at hers, and the brother and sister walked hand in hand. The court brought them to a churchyard, a paved square court, with a raised bank of earth about breast-high, in the middle, enclosed by iron rails. Here, conveniently and healthfully, elevated above the level of the living, were the dead, and the tombstones, some of the latter droopingly inclined from the perpendicular, as if they were ashamed of the lies they told. They paced the whole of this place once, in a constrained and uncomfortable manner, when the boy stopped, and said, "'Lizzie, Mr. Edstone has something to say to you. I don't wish to be an interruption either to him or to you, and so I'll go and take a little stroll and come back.' "'I know in a general way what Mr. Headstone intends to say, and I very highly approve of it, as I hope, and indeed I do not doubt, you will. I needn't tell you, Lizzie, that I am under great obligations to Mr. Headstone, and that I am very anxious for Mr. Headstone to succeed in all he undertakes, as I hope, and as indeed I don't doubt, you must be.' "'Charlie!' returned his sister, detaining his hand as he withdrew it. "'I think you had better stay. I think Mr. Headstone had better not say what he thinks of saying.' "'Why, how do you know what it is?' returned the boy. "'Perhaps I don't. But perhaps you don't?' "'No, Liz, I should think not. If you knew what it was, you would give me a very different answer. There, let go. Be sensible.' I wonder you don't remember that Mr. Headstone is looking on. She allowed him to separate himself from her, and he, after saying, Now, Liz, be a rational girl and a good sister, walked away. She remained standing alone with Bradley Headstone, and it was not until she raised her eyes that he spoke. I said, he began, when I saw you last, that there was something unexplained which might perhaps influence you. I have come this evening to explain it. I hope you will not judge of me by my hesitating manner when I speak to you. You see me at my greatest disadvantage. It is most unfortunate for me that I wish you to see me at my best, and that I know you see me at my worst. She moved slowly on when he paused, and he moved slowly on beside her. "'It seems egotistical to begin by saying so much about myself,' he resumed. "'But whatever I say to you seems, even in my own ears, below what I want to say, and different from what I want to say. I can't help it. So it is. You are the ruin of me.' She started at the passionate sound of the last words. 
and at the passionate action of his hands with which they were accompanied. "'Yes, you are the ruin, the ruin, the ruin of me. I have no resources in myself. I have no confidence in myself. I have no government of myself when you are near me, or, or in my thoughts. And you are always in my thoughts now. I have never been quit of you since I first saw you. Oh, that was a wretched day for me. That was a wretched, miserable day. A touch of pity for him mingled with her dislike of him, and she said, Mr. Headstone, I am grieved to have done you any harm, but I have never meant it. There, he cried despairingly, now I seem to have reproached you, instead of revealing to you the state of my own mind. Bear with me. I am always wrong when you are in question. It is my doom. Struggling with himself, and by times looking up at the deserted windows of the houses, as if there could be anything written in their grimy panes that would help him, he paced the whole pavement at her side, before he spoke again. "'I must try to give expression to what is in my mind. It shall and must be spoken. Though you see me so confounded, though you strike me so helpless, I ask you to believe that there are many people who think well of me, that there are some people who highly esteem me, that I have, in my way, won a station which is considered worth winning. Surely, Mr. Headstone, I do believe it. Surely I have always known it from Charlie. I ask you to believe that if I were to offer my home such as it is, my station such as it is, my affections such as they are, to any one of the best considered and best qualified and most distinguished among the young women engaged in my calling, they would probably be accepted, even readily accepted. I do not doubt it, said Lizzie, with her eyes upon the ground. I have sometimes had it in my thoughts to make that offer, and to settle down, as many men of my class do. I, on the one side of a school, my wife on the other, both of us interested in the same work. "'Why have you not done so?' asked Lizzie Hexham. "'Why do you not do so?' "'Far better that I never did. The only one grain of comfort I have had these many weeks,' he said, always speaking passionately and when most emphatic, repeating that former action of his hands, which was like flinging his heart's blood down before her in drops upon the pavement-stones. The only one grain of comfort I have had these many weeks is that I never did. For if I had, and if the same spell had come upon me for my ruin, I know I should have broken that tie asunder, as if it had been a thread. She glanced at him with a glance of fear, and a shrinking gesture. He answered, as if she had spoken, "'No, it would not have been voluntary on my part, any more than it is voluntary in me to be here now. You draw me to you. If I were shut up in a strong prison, you would draw me out. I should break through the wall to come to you. If I were lying on a sick bed, you would draw me up to stagger to your feet and fall there.' The wild energy of the man, now quite let loose, was absolutely terrible. 
he stopped and laid his hand upon a piece of the coping of the burial-ground enclosure, as if he would have dislodged the stone. "'No man knows, till the time comes, what depths are within him. To some men it never comes. Let them rest and be thankful. To me you brought it. On me you forced it. And the bottom of this raging sea—' striking himself upon the breast, has been heaved up ever since. "'Mr. Headstone, I've heard enough. Let me stop you here. It will be better for you, and better for me. Let us find my brother.' "'Not yet. It shall, and must be spoken. I have been in torments ever since I stopped short of it before. You are alarmed. It is another of my miseries that I cannot speak to you or speak of you without stumbling at every syllable, and that I let the check go altogether and run mad. Here is a man lighting the lamps. You will be gone directly. I entreat of you, let us walk round this place again. You have no reason to look alarmed. I can restrain myself, and I will. She yielded to the entreaty. How could she do otherwise? And they paced the stones in silence. One by one the lights leaped up, making the cold grey church-tower more remote, and they were alone again. He said no more until they had regained the spot where he had broken off. There he again stood still, and again grasped the stone. In saying what he said then, he never looked at her, but looked at it, and wrenched at it. "'You know what I am going to say. I love you.' What other men may mean when they use that expression, I cannot tell. What I mean is that I am under the influence of some tremendous attraction, which I have resisted in vain, and which overmasters me. You could draw me to fire. You could draw me to water. You could draw me to the gallows. You could draw me to any death. You could draw me to anything I have most avoided. You could draw me to any exposure and disgrace. This, and the confusion of my thoughts, so that I am fit for nothing, is what I mean by your being the ruin of me. But, if you would return a favourable answer to my offer of myself in marriage, you could draw me to any good, every good, with equal force. My circumstances are quite easy, and you would want for nothing. My reputation stands quite high, and would be a shield for yours. If you saw me at my work, able to do it well and respected in it, you might even come to take a sort of pride in me. I would try hard that you should, whatever considerations I may have thought of against this offer. I have conquered, and I make it with all my heart. Your brother favours me to the utmost, and it is likely that we might live and work together. Anyhow, it is certain that he would have my best influence and support. I don't know what I could say more if I tried. I might only weaken what is ill enough said as it is. I only add that, if it is any claim on you to be in earnest, I am in thorough earnest, dreadful earnest. The powdered mortar from under the stone at which he wrenched rattled on the pavement to confirm his words. Mr. Headstone. Stop. I implore you, before you answer me, to walk round this place once more. It will give you a minute's time to think, and me a minute's time to get some fortitude together. 
Again she yielded to the entreaty, and again they came back to the same place, and again he worked at the stone. "'Is it?' he said, with his attention apparently engrossed by it. "'Yes.' "'Or no?' "'Mr. Headstone, I thank you sincerely, I thank you gratefully, and hope you may find a worthy wife before long, and be very happy. But it is no.' "'Is no short time necessary for reflection? No weeks or days?' he asked, in the same half-suffocated way. "'None whatever.' "'Are you quite decided? And is there no chance of any change in my favour?' "'I am quite decided, Mr. Headstone, and I am bound to answer. I am certain there is none.' "'Then,' said he, suddenly changing his tone and turning to her, and bringing his clenched hand down upon the stone with a force that laid the knuckles raw and bleeding, "'Then I hope that I may never kill him.' The dark look of hatred and revenge, with which the words broke from his livid lips, and with which he stood holding out his smeared hand as if it held some weapon, and had just struck a mortal blow, made her so afraid of him that she turned to run away. But he caught her by the arm. "'Mr. Headstone, let me go! Mr. Headstone, I must call for help!' "'It is I who should call for help,' he said. "'You don't know yet how much I need it.' The working of his face, as she shrank from it, glancing round for her brother and uncertain what to do, might have extorted a cry from her in another instant but all at once he sternly stopped it and fixed it, as if death itself had done so. "'There. You see, I have recovered myself. Hear me out.' With much of the dignity of courage, as she recalled her self-reliant life and her right to be free from accountability to this man, she released her arm from his grasp, and stood looking full at him. She had never been so handsome in his eyes. A shade came over them, while he looked back at her, as if she drew the very light out of them to herself. "'This time, at least, I will leave nothing unsaid.' He went on, folding his hands before him, clearly to prevent his being betrayed into any impetuous gesture. "'This last time, at least, I will not be tortured with afterthoughts of a lost opportunity.' Mr. Eugene Rayburn. "'Was it of him you spoke, in your ungovernable rage and violence?' Lizzie Hexton demanded with spirit. He bit his lip and looked at her, and said never a word. "'Was it Mr. Rayburn that you threatened?' He bit his lip again, and looked at her, and said never a word. "'You asked me to hear you out, and you will not speak. Let me find my brother.' "'Stay.' I threatened no one." Her look dropped for an instant to his bleeding hand. He lifted it to his mouth, wiped it on his sleeve, and again folded it over the other. "'Mr. Eugene Rayburn,' he repeated. "'Why do you mention that name again and again, Mr. Headstone?' "'Because it is the text of the little I have left to say. Observe. There are no threats in it. If I utter a threat, stop me, and fasten it upon me. Mr. Eugene Rayburn. A worse threat 
than was conveyed in his manner of uttering the name, could hardly have escaped him. "'He haunts you. You accept favours from him. You are willing enough to listen to him. I know it as well as he does.' "'Mr. Rayburn has been considerate and good to me, sir,' said Lizzie proudly, "'in connection with the death and with the memory of my poor father.' "'No doubt.' He is, of course, a very considerate and a very good man, Mr. Eugene Rayburn. He is nothing to you, I think, said Lizzie, with an indignation she could not repress. Oh, yes, he is. There you mistake. He is much to me. What can he be to you? He can be a rival to me, among other things, said Bradley. Mr. Headstone? returned Lizzie, with a burning face. "'It is cowardly in you to speak to me in this way, but it makes me able to tell you that I do not like you, and that I have never liked you from the first, and that no other living creature has anything to do with the effect you have produced upon me for yourself.' His head bent for a moment, as if under a weight, and he then looked up again, moistening his lips. I was going on with the little I had left to say. I knew all this about Mr. Eugene Rayburn, all the while you were drawing me to you. I strove against the knowledge, but quite in vain. It made no difference in me. With Mr. Eugene Rayburn in my mind I went on. With Mr. Eugene Rayburn in my mind I spoke to you just now. With Mr. Eugene Rayburn in my mind I have been set aside and I have been cast out. "'If you give those names to my thanking you for your proposal and declining it, is it my fault, Mr. Headstone?' said Lizzie, compassionating the bitter struggle he could not conceal, almost as much as she was repelled and alarmed by it. "'I am not complaining,' he returned. "'I am only stating the case. I had to wrestle with my self-respect when I submitted to be drawn to you in spite of Mr. Rayburn.' You may imagine how low my self-respect lies now." She was hurt and angry, but repressed herself in consideration of his suffering, and of his being her brother's friend. "'And it lies under his feet,' said Bradley, unfolding his hands in spite of himself, and fiercely motioning with them both towards the stones of the pavement. "'Remember that.' It lies under that fellow's feet, and he treads upon it, and exults above it. "'He does not,' said Lizzie. "'He does,' said Bradley. "'I have stood before him face to face, and he crushed me down in the dirt of his contempt, and walked over me. Why? Because he knew with triumph what was in store for me to-night.' "'Oh, Mr. Edstone! "'You talk quite wildly.' "'Quite collectedly. "'I know what I say too well. "'Now I have said all. "'I have used no threat, remember. "'I have done no more than show you how the case stands. "'How the case stands, so far.' "'At this moment her brother sauntered into view close by. "'She darted to him, and caught him by the hand. "'Bradley followed, and laid his heavy hand on the boy's opposite shoulder.' "'Charlie Hexham, I am going home. I must walk home by myself to-night, and get shut up in my room without being spoken to. Give me half an hour's start, 
and let me be, till you find me at my work in the morning. I shall be at my work in the morning, just as usual. Clasping his hands, he uttered a short, unearthly, broken cry, and went his way. The brother and sister were left looking at one another, near a lamp in the solitary churchyard, and the boy's face clouded and darkened, as he said in a rough tone, "'What is the meaning of this? What have you done to my best friend? Out with the truth!' "'Charlie,' said his sister, "'speak a little more considerately.' "'I am not in a humour for consideration, or for nonsense of any sort,' replied the boy. "'What have you been doing?' "'Why has Mr. Headstone gone from us in that way?' "'He asked me—you know he asked me—to be his wife, Charlie.' "'Well,' said the boy impatiently, "'and I was obliged to tell him that I could not be his wife.' "'You were obliged to tell him?' repeated the boy angrily between his teeth, and rudely pushing her away. "'You were obliged to tell him?' Do you know that he's worth fifty of you? It may easily be so, Charlie, but I cannot marry him. You mean that you are conscious that you can't appreciate him, and don't deserve him, I suppose? I mean that I do not like him, Charlie, and that I will never marry him. Upon my soul! exclaimed the boy. You're a nice picture of a sister. Upon my soul, you're a pretty piece of disinterestedness. And so all my endeavours to cancel the past, and erase myself on the world, and erase you with me, are beaten down by your low whims, are they? I will not reproach you, Charlie. Yeah, exclaimed the boy, looking round at the darkness. She won't reproach me. She does her best to destroy my fortunes in her own, and she won't reproach me. Why, you'll tell me next that you won't reproach Mr. Headstone for coming out of the sphere to which he is an ornament, and putting himself at your feet to be rejected by you. No, Charlie, I will only tell you, as I told him myself, that I thank him for doing so, and I am sorry he did so, and that I hope he will do much better and be happy. Some touch of compunction smote the boy's hardening heart as he looked upon her. His patient little nurse in infancy, his patient friend, adviser, and reclaimer in boyhood, the self-forgetting sister who had done everything for him, his tone relented, and he drew her arm through his. "'Now, come, Liz, don't let us quarrel. Let us be reasonable and talk this over like brother and sister.' "'Will you listen to me?' "'Oh, Charlie,' she replied, through her starting tears, "'do I not listen to you, and hear many hard things? "'Then I'm sorry. "'There, Liz, I'm unfeignedly sorry. "'Only you do put me out so. "'Now see.' Mr. Edstown is perfectly devoted to you. He has told me in the strongest manner that he has never been his old self for one single minute since I first brought him to see you. Miss Peacher, our schoolmistress, pretty and young and all that, is known to be very much attached to him, and he won't so much as look at her, or hear of her. Now, his devotion to you must be a disinterested one, mustn't it? 
if he married Miss Peach, eh, he would be a great deal better off in all worldly respects than in marrying you. Well, then, he has nothing to get by it, has he? Nothing, heaven knows. Very well, then, said the boy. That's something in his favour, and a great thing. Then I come in. Mr. Edstone has always got me on, and he has a good deal in his power, and of course if he was my brother-in-law he wouldn't get me on less, but would get me on more. Mr. Edstone comes and confides in me in a very delicate way, and says, I hope my marrying your sister will be agreeable to you, Exum, and useful to you. I say, there's nothing in the world, Mr. Edstone, that I could be better pleased with. Mr. Headstone says, then I may rely upon your intimate knowledge of me for your good word with your sister, Exum. And I say, certainly, Mr. Headstone, and naturally I have a good deal of influence with her. So I have, haven't I, Liz? Yes, Charlie. Well said. Now, you see, we begin to get on. The moment we begin to be really talking it over like brother and sister. Very well. Then you come in. As Mr. Headstone's wife, you would be occupying a most respectable station, and you would be holding a far better place in society than you hold now, and you would at length get quit of the riverside and the old disagreeables belonging to it, and you would be rid for good of dolls' dressmakers and their drunken fathers and the like of that. Not that I want to disparage Miss Jenny Wren. I dare say she's all very well in her way, but her way is not your way, as Miss Headstone's wife. Now, you see, Liz, on all three accounts, on Miss Edstone's, on mine, on yours, nothing could be better or more desirable. They were walking slowly as the boy spoke, and here he stood still to see what effect he had made. His sister's eyes were fixed upon him, but as they showed no yielding, and as she remained silent, he walked her on again. There was some discomfiture in his tone as he resumed, though he tried to conceal it. "'Having so much influence with you, Liz, as I have, perhaps I should have done better to have had a little chat with you in the first instance, before Mr. Headstone spoke for himself. But really, all this in his favour seemed so plain and undeniable. I knew you to have always been so reasonable and sensible. I didn't consider it worth while. Very likely that was a mistake of mine. However, it soon set right.' All it need be done to set it right is for you to tell me at once that I may go home and tell Mr. Edstone that what has taken place is not final, and it will all come round by and by. He stopped again. The pale face looked anxiously and lovingly at him, but she shook her head. "'Can't you speak?' said the boy sharply. "'I'm very unwilling to speak, Charlie. If I must—' I must. I cannot authorise you to say any such thing to Mr. Headstone. I cannot allow you to say any such thing to Mr. Headstone. Nothing remains to be said to him from me, after what I have said for good and all to-night. "'And this girl,' cried the boy, contemptuously throwing her off again, "'calls herself a sister.' "'Charlie, dear,' "'That is the second time that you've almost struck me. "'Don't be hurt by my words. 
I don't mean, heaven forbid, that you intended it, but you hardly know with what a sudden swing you removed yourself from me. However, said the boy, taking no heed of the remonstrance, and pursuing his own mortified disappointment, I know what this means, and you shall not disgrace me. It means what I've told you, Charlie, and nothing more. That's not true, said the boy in a violent tone, and you know it's not. It means your precious Mr. Rayburn. That's what it means. Charlie, if you remember any old days of ours together, forbear. But you shall not disgrace me doggedly pursued the boy. I am determined that after I have climbed up out of the mire, you shall not pull me down. You can't disgrace me if I have nothing to do with you, and I will have nothing to do with you for the future. Charlie, on many a night like this, and many a worse night, I have sat on the stones of the street, hushing you in my arms. Unsay those words without even saying you're sorry for them, and my arms are open to you still, and so is my heart. I'll not unsay them. I'll say them again. You are an inveterately bad girl, and a false sister, and I've done with you, for ever I have done with you. He threw up his ungrateful and ungracious hand, as if it set up a barrier between them, and flung himself upon his heel, and left her. She remained impassive on the same spot, silent and motionless, until the striking of the church clock roused her, and she turned away. But then, with the breaking up of her immobility, came the breaking up of the waters that the cold heart of the selfish boy had frozen, and— "'Oh, that I were lying here with the dead!' and— "'Oh, Charlie, Charlie!' that this should be the end of our pictures in the fire were all the words she said as she laid her face in her hands on the stone coping a figure passed by and passed on but stopped and looked round at her it was the figure of an old man with a bowed head wearing a large brimmed low-crowned hat and a long-skirted coat after hesitating a little the figure turned back and advancing with an air of gentleness and compassion said "'Pardon me, young woman, for speaking to you, but you are under some distress of mind. I cannot pass upon my way and leave you weeping here alone, as if there was nothing in the place. Can I help you? Can I do anything to give you comfort?' She raised her head at the sound of these kind words, and answered gladly, "'Oh, Mr. Fryer, is it you?' "'My daughter!' said the old man. I stand amazed. I spoke as to a stranger. Take my arm, take my arm. What grieves you? Who has done this? Poor girl, poor girl. My brother has quarrelled with me, sobbed Lizzie, and renounced me. He is a thankless dog, said the Jew angrily. Let him go. Shake the dust from thy feet, and let him go. Come, daughter, come home with me. It is but across the road, and take a little time to recover your peace, and to make your eyes seemly, and then I will bear you company through the streets, for it is past your usual time, and will soon be late, and the way is long, and there is much company out of doors to-night. 
she accepted the support he offered her, and they slowly passed out of the churchyard. They were in the act of emerging into the main thoroughfare, when another figure, loitering discontentedly by, and looking up the street and down it, and all about, started and exclaimed, "'Lizzie! Why, where have you been? Why, what's the matter?' As Eugene Rayburn thus addressed her, she drew closer to the Jew, and bent her head. The Jew, having taken in the whole of Eugene at one sharp glance, cast his eyes upon the ground, and stood mute. "'Lizzie, what is the matter?' "'Mr. Rayburn, I cannot tell you now. I cannot tell you to-night, if I ever can tell you. Pray, leave me.' "'But, Lizzie, I came expressly to join you. I came to walk home with you, having dined at a coffee-house in this neighbourhood, and knowing your hour. And I have been lingering about.' added Eugene, like a bailiff, or, with a look at Ryer, an old uh, clothesman. The Jew lifted up his eyes, and took in Eugene once more, at another glance. "'Mr. Rayburn, pray, pray, leave me with this protector, and one thing more, pray, pray be careful of yourself.' "'Mysteries of Udolpho!' said Eugene, with a look of wonder, "'may I be excused for asking, in the elderly gentleman's presence, who is this kind protector?' "'A trustworthy friend,' said Lizzie. "'I will relieve him of his trust,' returned Eugene. "'But you must tell me, Lizzie, what is the matter?' "'Her brother is the matter,' said the old man, lifting up his eyes again. "'Our brother the matter?' returned Eugene, with airy contempt. "'Our brother is not worth a thought, far less a tear. What has our brother done?' The old man lifted up his eyes again, with one grave look at Rayburn, and one grave glance at Lizzie, as she stood looking down. Both were so full of meaning, that even Eugene was checked in his light career, and subsided into a thoughtful, "'Hm!' With an air of perfect patience, the old man, remaining mute, and keeping his eyes cast down, stood retaining Lizzie's arm, as though in his habit of passive endurance it would be all one to him if he had stood there motionless all night. "'If Mr. Aaron,' said Eugene, who soon found this fatiguing, "'will be good enough to relinquish his charge to me, he will be quite free for any engagement he may have at the synagogue.' "'Mr. Aaron, will you have the kindness?' But the old man stood stock-still. "'Good evening, Mr. Aaron,' said Eugene politely. "'We need not detain you.' Then turning to Lizzie, "'Is our friend Mr. Aaron a little deaf?' "'My hearing is very good, Christian gentleman,' replied the old man calmly. "'But I will hear only one voice to-night.' desiring me to leave this damsel before I have conveyed her to her home. If she requests it, I will do it. I will do it for no one else. "'May I ask why so, Mr. Aaron?' said Eugene, quite undisturbed in his ease. "'Excuse me. If she asks me, I will tell her,' replied the old man. "'I will tell no one else.' "'I do not ask you.' 
said Lizzie, and I beg you to take me home. Mr. Rayburn, I have had a bitter trial to-night, and I hope you will not think me ungrateful, or mysterious, or changeable. I am neither. I am wretched. Pray remember what I said to you. Pray, pray, take care. My dear Lizzie, he returned in a low voice, bending over her on the other side, of what? Of whom? Of any one you have lately seen and made angry. He snapped his fingers and laughed. Come, said he, since no better may be, Mr. Aaron and I will divide this trust and see you home together. Mr. Aaron on that side, I on this. If perfectly agreeable to Mr. Aaron, the escort will now proceed. He knew his power over her. He knew that she would not insist upon his leaving her. He knew that, her fears for him being aroused, she would be uneasy if he were out of her sight. For all his seeming levity and carelessness, he knew whatever he chose to know of the thoughts of her heart. And going on at her side, so gaily, regardless of all that had been urged against him, so superior in his sallies and self-possession to the gloomy constraint of her suitor and the selfish petulance of her brother, so faithful to her, as it seemed, when her own stock was faithless, what an immense advantage, what an overpowering influence, were his that night! Add to the rest, poor girl, that she had heard him vilified for her sake, and that she had suffered for his, and where the wonder that his occasional tones of serious interest setting off his carelessness, as if it were assumed to calm her, that his lightest touch, his lightest look, his very presence beside her in the dark common street, were like glimpses of an enchanted world, which it was natural for jealousy and malice and all meanness to be unable to bear the brightness of, and to gird at as bad spirits might. Nothing more being said of repairing to Ryers, they went direct to Lizzie's lodging. A little short of the house-door, she parted from them and went in alone. "'Mr. Aaron,' said Eugene, when they were left together in the street, "'with many thanks for your company, it remains for me unwillingly to say farewell.' "'Sir,' returned the other, "'I give you good-night, and I wish that you were not so thoughtless.' "'Mr. Aaron,' returned Eugene, "'I give you good-night, and I wish, for you are a little dull, that you are not so thoughtful. But now that his part was played out for the evening, and when in turning his back upon the Jew he came off the stage, he was thoughtful himself. "'How did uh, Lightwood's catechism run?' he murmured, as he stopped to light his cigar. "'What is to come of it? What are you doing? Where are you going? We shall soon know now. Ah!' with a heavy sigh. The heavy sigh was repeated as if by an echo an hour afterwards, when Riah, who had been sitting on some dark steps in a corner over against the house, arose and went his patient way, stealing through the streets in his ancient dress, like the ghost of a departed time. End of Book Two, Chapter Fifteen
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.